1420, in the town of Wakefield on the island of Great Britain, a play was recorded in a manual of scripts for the local Corpus Christi pageant. The play has come to be known as the Second Shepherd's Pageant and marks, arguably, the first ever British comedy. The play's significance is considerable. Not only do we see a sophisticated plot structure that had been absent in medieval drama, we see the play notifying us of the fundamental changes that modernity is going to bring to the world. It's important for contemporary analysis as the modern era comes to a close. And I, Stuart Parker, and Dan Jennison, our interviewer, will be talking about this play in a total of seven segments, explaining the rise of modernity and the forces that are beginning to tear at its edges. You are listening to episode three of Los Altos Radio. Today we're going to talk about landscape as an idea, an artistic idea, an ecological idea, and a social idea. Because landscape as a concept did not exist before the world the Second Shepherd's Pageant describes. So last uh, last episode, we talked a fair bit about the wool boom, the climate downturn of the 14th century, and um, uh, the way that this created this new demand for wool, changing um, the calculus of the value of land and the value of human labor on land in uh, Northern and Central Europe. So... Today, we want to take that in a bit of a different direction and actually think about what this means to the land. The way we can start looking into that is the way that art changed in the 16th century. So one of the things we associate with um, the Italian Renaissance um, is uh, all of this new art that in Italy is... Uh, tries to point backwards to classical realism. So you have da Vinci, Michelangelo, Titian, interested in lifelike realistic sculpture, interested in lifelike realistic uh, portraiture, etc. There's a major artistic movement that we associate with this time that is that is not based in the lands we associate with the Renaissance, though. Um, it's the Dutch. It's the rise of new styles of Dutch painting. We see that there's a, there's a new kind of artistic style as there is in Italy. But there isn't just a new artistic style, there is a new artistic subject. Terms that have been used uh, around this, romantic, pastoral. But the most important of these is landscape itself. It's in the 16th century that the word landscape enters the English language. And it is a loan word from Dutch, 
the first meaning landscape takes on in English, the first thing that that, that term corresponds to, Landschap in Dutch, landscape in English, what it means is a vista resembling a Dutch landscape painting. So while we might think that landscape painting derives from the idea of a landscape, the reverse is true. The idea of landscape as a thing you see with your eyes in the created world is actually a thing that derives from a Dutch art form. So what, were, what was this new artistic subject the Dutch sought to depict? And what they, what they sought to depict was a new way that the world looked because of unprecedented ecological and economic events that were closely linked to each other. So we think last episode about how the gentry purchased land or um, had land given to them by the crown that had previously been what we call common land or feudal land. Feudal lands are places where peasants live and farm and build their houses. Technically, it's not their land. It's land that the king has lent to an aristocrat on the condition that the aristocrat protect those peasants and permit them to grow crops and have homes and uh, live on the land. The peasants then owe the aristocrat some portion of their harvest in exchange for protection. If you stop protecting your peasants, your feudal title is void under feudalism. And this is similar to the common lands. Common lands are lands that are owned by the king that are administered collectively by peasants or by the church on behalf of those peasants, where again the peasants live in houses that they build and inherit, till fields that they um, that contain their crops that their children can then till. Um, this is the relationship to the land. With the rise of the Dutch Republic and the rise of the Tudor dynasty in England, um, there's a shift in how land is held towards how land is held today, which is what we call fee simple title. That's where the land is not land you're holding in trust for the king. It's land you've paid cash money for and you own. Therefore, your ownership of that land is not contingent on things you do. So you have no obligation to the peasants who live on that land. And during the wool boom, gentlemen did what lords could not. They evicted peasants from the land and replaced them with sheep. The feudal labor versus uh, capitalist labor, in which there was considerably more leisure time and autonomy for the for the feudal peasant than there is for the industrial capitalist worker, according to a lot of scholarship. I thought we might oh yeah, no, this that. is yeah. this is classic Marxism, right? So let's imagine that you are one of those feudal workers. You owe the lord a cut. That means if you're willing to work less, 
your pro if you're willing to endure producing less, the Lord will have to endure you paying less. That's just the thin edge of the wedge. You inherit your tools from your parents or you make new ones. You inherit your house from your parents or you make a new one. You inherit the fields uh, that you till from your parents or you make new fields. And these are things that you're doing and all the Lord can do is demand a cut. So the Lord doesn't own your time. The Lord's legitimacy in holding the territory is based on having relationships with peasants. Now, these relationships are often violent. These relationships are, of course, highly unequal. But they're exchange-based relationships in a more complex way. Now, let's imagine one of those feudal lords backed the wrong side in the Wars of the Roses, backed the Yorkists, they're thrown off that land. And along comes the Tudor dynasty. And instead of, and the Tudor dynasty says, well, you didn't maintain your obligations to your peasants. And given that it's the obligation of the king to decide that, the king has latitude to make arbitrary decisions as long as he can survive a military uprising by the lords he screws over. And so under the Tudors, there was a great deal of willingness to buy new allies, to create a new, differently structured aristocracy. One that it wasn't truly an aristocracy, as in feudalism, where your title, your association with the land comes from your parents. Instead, in a um, what's created in its place is a gentry, where your association with the land your title comes directly from the king, or it comes from the purchase of the land outright. So yes, a very different set of relationships. And for the peasant, let's suppose you're kicked off that land and you're hired back as an agricultural laborer. All your boss is buying is your time. He doesn't owe you a home. He doesn't owe you a field. Your children can't inherit your job. You are just being paid for your time tilling the soil. The unfairness of that agricultural labor is dramatized in the Bible itself, in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, where in the morning, the um, Lord of the vineyard goes to town and he uh, gets a bunch of laborers uh, to... Um, pick his grapes before the first frost comes that night. At around noon, he realizes he doesn't have enough laborers, and he goes back to town, and he hires more. The sun is setting. The grapes still haven't all been picked. The frost is coming any minute. He returns to town a third time and hires the remaining laborers he needs. And then the frost comes, the grapes are all picked, and he pays each group of laborers the same because they're equally deserving, because it doesn't matter what, and this is, of course, a metaphor for conversion. No matter when you come to Christ, you get the same reward. But we also have to remember that there's a literalism to this that we, that we lose in the modern world, that this is also a direct economic critique of how migrant laborers are paid, that like it's arbitrary and unfair at what time of day you're hired or how long you're hired for, and that's in the hands of the bosses. And the idea that some people wouldn't get enough money to live on 
simply because of the arbitrary order in which someone chose to hire them, you can see that there's a material critique of that injustice that's already framing the consciousness of people in this time. And that's why the rewrite of the Bible, the retranslation of the Bible is such an important part of this because of the palpable injustice of moving to a proto-capitalist system based around a gentry away from a feudal system based around an aristocracy. Anyway, one of the things that we're missing here with when we're talking about the art, it's not just depicting a novel set of social relationships. The point is that the land itself looks different. And it's the Dutch who aestheticize this physical change in what the land they look at resembles. Dutch landscape paintings depict a land not that is uninhabited, but that is disinhabited. A land on which people used to build homes and grow crops that now has no people living on it. And so one of the most important features of a landscape is an absence of people. The next feature you associate with a Dutch landscape painting is that they often show ruins. They will show ruined cottages that had once been lived in by peasants and are now empty because the gentry do not owe dwellings to their migrant laborers in the way that the aristocrats had owed those dwellings. So we see collapsing thatched roofs. We see crumbling uh, brick and stone walls. Landscape painting is a painting of absence of loss, and, but it aestheticizes that loss as beautiful and wistful. And what it will become in the 19th century when it becomes a complete aesthetic, romantic and pastoral, the pastoral landscape has some other features, though. This is not an afforested landscape. Sheep eat small trees in the way that they eat grass. So one of the things about having a big herd of sheep, who may or may not be visible in the landscape, the evidence of the sheep is always there, which is a grassland ecosystem with small groves of trees rather than if people, if this had ceased to be a locus of economic production, those groves of trees would have spread outwards covering the grass. But the sheep keep the trees in check, which is why the sheep are always apparent in a landscape painting, even when they're not visible in a landscape painting. And I think this goes to an important thing about capitalism that we often, if we live in an urban environment, forget. We assume that capitalism is filling up the world. You go to a place like Mission, for instance, right, where Mission is literally a pyramid scheme. Like about over half of the residents work either in building trades or real estate. And so they just, they just build more stuff. They just build the pyramid and it gets bigger. Like the Fraser Valley is just a multi-level marketing project for housing. And um, that you can actually fuel the building of those homes simply through the profits of building trades and real estate agents commissions. So 
when one lives in an urban environment, especially like Vancouver, where housing is starting to produce novel forms of economic rent, you forget that what capitalism mostly does is it clears land. It clears land of ecosystems. It clears land of animals. It clears land of people. But the experience of clearing that land becomes aestheticized and celebrated by the bourgeoisie who are engaged in its clearance, who choose to see the desolation they are creating as a new form of beauty. We might, uh, we might wonder if uh, the peasants uh, disinhabited from the land at that time uh, saw that dramatically differently. For, for example, the way Orwell saw the slag heaps of northern uh, England and the coal mines. Um, you could aestheticize that uh, in, a, in a romantic way if you wanted to. There is, in fact, a post-industrial aestheticization project uh, that's going on in the American Northeast. When I lived in Rhode Island, the most visited municipal park in Providence is called the India Point Park. And it is pieces of industrial equipment rusting out in a way that's aestheticized, surrounded by picnic tables and groves of trees and grasslands. It's, this, it's, a, it's an industrial part of the port that was closed down and you have these big chains. And of course, one of those places of aestheticization that we miss um, as Vancouverites, a thing where we actually started the trip, Granville Island Market, where you have pointless railroad tracks leading nowhere in cobblestones. You have shuttered breweries, shuttered uh, sawmills that are now serving as restaurants and market space for the haute bourgeoisie. They're not gentrified, yeah. Yes, that's spread across the continent, right? The post-industrial landscape as aesthetic. Montreal has five of these markets. The most famous is now St. Lawrence Market in Toronto. And of course, um, there are a bunch of knockoffs all around Vancouver. These are former industrial sites that have now been ways to sell expensive goods to the bourgeoisie. So I think it's very much on point to imagine that there is a class difference that working class people looking at landscapes would not see very much beauty Mm -hmm. in an ecosystem stunted by overgrazing and a village destroyed by capitalism. On on Instagram, once places that were were formerly industrial are thoroughly gentrified in that in that faux rough way, uh, yes. where, where, where they're where they're incredibly safe, uh, gentle, boring places with the aesthetic of of them being dangerous, uh, lower class types of neighborhoods, uh, that's now being called uh, neo noir. Oh, in beautiful! Some, There's yeah. a name now for this horse mm-hmm. shit. Well, of course, we um, we know where this train is going for the landscape. And where it's headed is romanticism. It's headed towards Samuel Taylor Coleridge and uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's headed towards the French romantics. What they become very interested in doing is exactly what you're talking about, which is going into something that's supposed to be rough or novel or alien and experiencing it and then using visiting the place as a new category of, of experience that the privileged can have. There's this idea then that if you have sufficient privilege and you are ahead of the curve on aesthetics, 
become, you become like William Wordsworth and you go to the Lakes District. You go to the Lakes District to write poems like The Ruined Cottage. Mm -hmm. And um, there's Wordsworth experiencing these landscapes from which people have been brutally evicted. And he's going, and this makes me special because I can have a spiritual experience here. I can have a novel kind of experience that connects me to God that makes me special. So Wordsworth talked about how the landscape could deprave you, how it could reconnect you to a kind of primal self. And that's how, where, what romanticism does. It takes the landscape movement and it attaches to it um, an epistemology and an ideology and a politics of class-based experience. When the time comes uh, where so many people have read William Wordsworth's poems and so many of the aspiring gentry of England wish to have those aestheticized experiences, a company builds passenger rail to the Lakes District just for tourists and Wordsworth opposes it, that the rabble of London are going to come to the Lakes District and ruin his haute bourgeois experience. Which, of course, uh, is where they came from originally. With the land, yes. Right. So, right. so the yeah. idea that these people who are evicted from this land might return as tourists one day is repugnant to Wordsworth. And, and of course, d during the Romantic era, one of the ubiquitous upper-class, you know, bourgeois performances was that of uh, La Sensibilité. So this uh, this landscape was supposed to move you to the point of, of deep emotion and poignancy and tears and, and creating all sorts of uh, inspiring art to lionize this disinhabitation and to glorify it. Uh, again, very different and striking from what the peasants would have experienced. And this, to go pro, has to go to America. This is where it hits the next level, right? It's mm -hmm. with Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's with Transcendental Meditation. Here's a social movement that is sitting uncomfortably next to the Enlightenment. Like in many ways, it's the Jaina space of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment is about two ideas, that we should use reason and evidence to make decisions and that the best people are the people with the most feelings and the most sensitive feelings. And so, um, so the enlightenment brings with it the forces that will eventually tear it down. That belief that really, really feeling something somehow makes it more true. And that's what uh, the romanticism of a Ralph Waldo Emerson or a John Muir or Henry David Thoreau, for example. Um, yes, or Thoreau. That's what um, that's what happens. Now, Thoreau at least moors his politics to a politics of racial justice and other values. Like mm -hmm. one of the things about the sensitivity of the Enlightenment is it permits people to empathize with slaves, and it helps to produce abolitionism as an ethical construct among elites. The fact that there were elite abolitionists because of the politics of sensitivity was no doubt important in bringing down slavery. And people like Thoreau and to a lesser extent Emerson are heroic in that. But the train doesn't stop there. It stops at John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club, dues paying member of the Republican Party, 
and an associate of the up-and-comer Teddy Roosevelt in the 1890s. Uh, he and Roosevelt are people who helped to put together the National Civic Federation, which is the first organization that ever calls itself progressive. Wow, uh, no, that's, a, that's a loaded term for our time. Yes, so progressivism, <clears throat> we have to remember, it comes out of a federation of trade unions, moderate trade unions, big business, they're the biggest chunk, the major corporations of America, the Republican Party, and the Sierra Club. Now, the Sierra Club has a more aggressive theory of disinhabitation than the unreconstructed capitalism of early modern England and the Netherlands. This theory of disinhabitation really begins with Yosemite Park. And it has to do with this exciting Republican technology that's developed and first used in the American Civil War, the machine gun. The first national parks in America were created by murdering all of the indigenous people living there or driving them out in order to produce an even more austere and profound kind of landscape. Because these parks, you were often driving out semi-sedentary or non-sedentary people. There wouldn't be those crumbling walls cluttering up the picture. There would just be these lands emptied of human beings at gunpoint. One of the reasons that the major railway companies threw in is the way that the Sierra Club could promote a particular landscape globally. And there are all these regions the railways had to run through where no extractive industry could be performed because they were alpine regions or uh, seismically unstable regions, uh, all kinds of reasons that it was not profitable to have a train station in um, Yellowstone. But if the landscape itself were aestheticized, if the Nepals Indians could be marched at gunpoint across hundreds of miles to evict them, then suddenly the railways could build hotels and they could market these huge, visually shocking landscapes all over the continent. And of course, that is um, how Banff and Jasper came into being as communities and how they function economically. Banff and Lake Louise, um, these are places that had no value without the romantic movement aestheticizing landscape. Yeah, I, I might be wrong, but I don't remember the Ken Burns documentary on national parks discussing the uh, machine guns and the, uh, the disinhabitation part. One of the great ironies of progressivism is that um, on the one hand, it argues that there's an inexorable historical force driving us towards justice, and we just need to fasten our seatbelts and be on for the ride. But on the other hand, progressivism is unable to observe itself as a historical subject. So it can never understand that it itself changes all the time 
and its theory of our destination and our point of origin is constantly in flux. You are listening to Los Altos Radio, episode three of our podcast documentary on the Second Shepherd's Pageant. This episode focusing on the invention of landscape in the 1500s. We're in the Americas. We're talking disinhabitation. Uh, We're going to cover uh, the climate downturn. So we can discuss the disinhabitation of the Amazon region. Let's finish off the ecology. There is the great irony of disinhabitation and the Amazon Mm. that um, Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about. So I've been focused on a climate downturn that takes place in uh, the 14th century. The 16th century is the site of the next major climate downturn the world experiences. And it's actually quite rare for such events to be slow, close together, have major episodes of global cooling uh, back to back like that. And one of the reasons for that is um, has to do with so- large scale seismic activity has mostly driven these temporary cooling episodes, uh, volcanism, particularly in Indonesia. The re- one of the reasons that uh, the 16th century downturn <clears throat> is so meriting of examination is that um, it's not uh, driven by volcanism. It's the first human-forced uh, climate downturn, but in a bizarre and ironic way. There are very few jurisdictions in which uh, Europeans uh, have used uh, germ warfare self-consciously against indigenous people. Uh, we live in um, one of them. Outside of British Columbia, the Canadian prairies, and one location in the Ohio Valley 200 years earlier, uh, Europeans generally avoided um, unleashing pathogens intentionally against indigenous people in the New World. Why? Was it because they were nice people? Well, it is true that germ warfare was looked down on in Europe and um, that uh, the fact the British Empire had used germ warfare during the Seven Years' War um, was a key propaganda point used by George Washington and others during the American Revolution to argue the British were dishonorable. Uh, generally, a bit like Roman, the, Roman Carthage and the baby sacrifice, right? Uh, yeah, it's, um, yes, that was, um, yes, this idea that this is, that the British are so dishonorable, they did this thing to our enemies. But the fact that these that um, these people were the enemies also of America didn't in any way uh, mitigate the fact that the British had committed a crime against humanity. Mm-hmm. But the main reason it was okay for Europeans to hold on to that um, humanitarian sensibility is that it was almost never a good idea to um, cause lots of indigenous people to die um, because there wasn't an easily obtainable replacement labor force. So generally, if you let epidemics get out of control, a region would go into an economic downturn and everybody would get less rich and no one would be happy because African slaves are expensive uh, as replacement labor and uh, required, you know, a lot of force. So generally, when epidemics hit indigenous communities, um, uh, European settlers... Um, tended to mitigate the effects of those epidemics. This means that um, although indigenous populations were decimated in those regions, they were less decimated 
than in regions where there were no European settlers. This also has to do with the property of what Alfred Crosby called virgin soil epidemics, mm-hmm. where when a new pathogen hits a population with no immunity, everybody in the population gets sick at the same time. The economy shuts down, and most people in a virgin soil epidemic die from lack of nursing or starvation after starvation. they survive. So the best reason to live next to Europeans was that some people had immunity because they had already had the disease. And another good reason was that um, so some people could nurse the sick and nursing is the most important thing in any epidemic. COVID, uh, just another example, right? The quality of nursing depends on, determines your survival rate. And you're so, talking ba- basic nursing, just, just yeah, changing yeah. and cleaning. and Yeah, yeah and making, keeping people hydrated. Keeping people hydrated right. is the biggest thing. There's, there are two regions of the Americas that, unfortunately for them, had highly efficient transportation networks that permitted trade over a much larger geographic scale than European colonists could move through. One was the Louisiana Basin, uh, pardon me, the Mississippi Basin that came to be known as Louisiana. And the other was the Amazon Basin, which came to be known as Northern and Interior Brazil. In the case of these places, smallpox and other European diseases moves rapidly across the huge amounts of navigable water in these regions and hit community after community with no immunity. Trade would shut down, maize production would shut down. Both of these places were based on slash and burn maize agriculture and had high populations in the million. In the case of Amazonia, we're looking at an over 99% death rate from the epidemics and it's centuries before Europeans move into the central Amazon. The culture they encounter there and the ecosystem they encounter there, they believe that Amazon is, the Amazon is old growth forest, but it's not. Almost no trees are over 500 years old because so much of the region was part of this slash and burn maize agriculture. The indigenous people there believe that they have lived as hunter-gatherers um, since time immemorial, But in fact, they are the remnants of a large agricultural civilization numbering in the millions. What this meant in practical terms was that as the agriculture shut down, as human beings were removed through disease, in this case, from the ecosystems, huge amounts of carbon were sucked out of the atmosphere in the second half of the 16th century to create the uh, eastern woodlands of the Mississippi Basin, and the Amazon rainforest. In many ways, this is the beginning of the Anthropocene. But what this also does is again creates disinhabited landscapes that have this uncanny appearance, this primeval appearance that effaces the presence of human beings. And of course, this additional climate downturn only increases the market for wool only accelerates the very forces that brought it about. Just, just to be clear, what, what you're saying is that the, the, the rise of the Amazon rainforest, which is less than 500 years old, sucked so much carbon out of the atmosphere that it caused a, a global climate downturn, particularly in Europe. 
yes, but globally, it um, it made things uh, colder and drier rather than colder and wetter, which is the norm because it was a slightly different kind of carbon forced event. It's what's called the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age is not a term given to the significant uh, previous climate downturns of the 1300s and the 500s. It's interesting how how different these scenarios are regarding disinhabitation, uh, the different way they affect the landscapes, uh, diametrically opposing ways they affected the landscapes, um, and the cultural amnesia we have around both of them with, with regards to what is natural and what we romanticize, right? The, the pastoral, bucolic landscape versus the, uh, the wilds of, of, this, of this Amazonian rainforest. Both are tourist destinations. Both are, are things that we romanticize. Both are things that, uh, that we have great historical amnesia around collectively. The only place where you can use the term landscape, where you can use that Dutch loan word and have it refer to an environment that people are currently in rather than environment people have been forced out of is Latin America. Latin American landscape painting is unlike landscape painting from anywhere else in the world. It remains full of people and, and it reflects a different historical experience that the Andes and Mexico Valley were so densely populated by indigenous people, it didn't matter if nine-tenths of them died. There was still an enormous indigenous population whose labor fed the Spanish Empire's vassals of the Western Hemisphere. I think it's salutary to recognize that the term landscape means differently in the one place where this project of disinhabitation was less successful. The Sierra Club, the progression from romanticism to environmentalism, like it's important to recognize that the original environmentalism was connected to romanticism, was a child of romanticism, but it's not the same thing. Based on an aesthetic, right? Yeah. It's also important to recognize that modern environmentalism is not discontinuous with the original environmentalism, that it is part of an intellectual genealogy that comes out of romanticism. Today, some of the superficial science worship discourse of, modern, of the modern environmental movement often seeks to obscure its origin in what I was said, describing earlier as the Janus face of the Enlightenment. Romanticism, the prioritization of personal experience over collective data, the prioritization of emotion over reason. These are things we associate with romanticism because they're part of the sensitivity aspect of the enlightenment. Those of us who yeah. are listeners who aren't quite familiar with Janus, can you just give us a, a 30 oh, second? Sorry, uh, Janus, a Roman god of doors. Um, okay. But he's that very evocative figure of the head with two faces, two identical faces pointing in opposite directions. And people would seek, when they wanted to be in a physically safe space, they would seek the blessing of Janus, God of Doors, because that he would be surveilling the portal in both directions, that he would be omniscient from the perspective of the door. So there's this original movement of Romanticism with which we associate Emerson and Thoreau. Now, Henry David Thoreau is also interesting because um, he doesn't seek out landscape. Again, we have to place him right at the periphery of this movement. He's an innovator in the movement, but right when he goes to Walden, he, he doesn't move to a disinhabited landscape. 
he moves to a landscape inhabited by the proletariat. And a lot of his stories at Walden are about minor social conflicts with neighbors. Loggers and the trains and farmers, yep. Yeah, it's, it's the very opposite, in fact, of the landscape that's been successfully disinhabited. Nevertheless, what, the reason we have to include Thoreau in this intellectual genealogy is transcendentalism, which is a global movement. The transcendental movement is mainly centered in the United States of America and secondarily in Britain. Um, and yet, the main present-day historical artifact of that movement is the Baha'i Church centered in Iran. So we have to understand that transcendentalism is a truly global movement that we might situate within what we call the Anglosphere the world of English speakers, which at this point, of course, includes Persia and India and the United States and Britain. And you're dealing with intellectuals, not all of whom are Christians. Some are Sunnis, some are Shiites, some are Sufis, some are Hindus, some are Jains. Now, transcendentalism is adjacent to a thing called mesmerism or animal magnetism. The term animal magnetism, which is the term Mesmer uses, refers to this idea that what's really going to happen in the 19th century is that we are, that the West and the Arab world will rediscover ontological monism. They will reject ontological dualism. The idea that there's one world which is supernatural and one world which is nature and that these things have different rules, different properties, can't be studied at the same time, can't be looked at at the same time. Mm -hmm. The thing that Newton is like, even though he's of course really the point of total ontological dualistic rupture, Newton wants this reunification. And these people share yeah. Newton's desire to, 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 to reunify alchemy and all these things. So they develop, for instance, the belief that um, now that they figured out the pro how magnets work and how electricity works, they see this idea of fields and action at a distance and invisible energy as what's going, and they, they think they're going to discover that spirits are detectable with instruments. That's right. That, Newton, Newton couldn't figure out, uh, he, he said gravity is this thing that I've, that I've come to understand as a force, but I don't have any idea what's behind it. This action at a distance stuff is crazy. And if you look at his journals, he's a total mystic about it. And yeah. so they wish to apply the idea of action at distance and fields to spirits. Mm -hmm. And they think this mm -hmm. is the way forward. Uh, lots of people got into this idea. Um, the Mormons canonized this idea in the 1830s. Mormonism in 1830, because of their canonization process, gives us a time capsule of a much more widely held belief mm -hmm. that we are on the cusp, that it's all going to unify back together that um, science religion will become a single thing uh, governed by a single set of principles. Science and, will lead back to God. Yes, this is. And so transcendental meditation is just one of the methods of getting there. The rise of the seance, the Ouija board, all of these other things are about this, this new knowledge making system that people believe is coming into being. And so, so landscape is in fact part of this. 
people are integrating ideas of how the landscape makes us feel, how being alone before God makes us feel. They're mm -hmm. integrating it into this larger worldview of incipient unification of all human experience and culture. Mm -hmm. And that's the full force of transcendentalism. That's the movement that Ralph Waldo Emerson sits at the center of. So, and it's in this way that we can then situate environmentalism and in particular, the institution of a hike, the hiking and camping. If we think of this as religion, then we understand that the hike is an ascetic practice, that it's the hajj of, of transcendentalism. That, would, you, would you call it a pilgrimage? Yes, pilgrimage or the hajj, the which hajj. is an even bigger deal that every honorable Muslim man must make the Hajj once, once in his life. Otherwise, he's not a Muslim. Otherwise, he has not served Allah. This, this helps to animate movements like the Sierra Club, for which it's not just that you're creating these parks to look at. You're creating these parks as a space for an enacted spiritual practice. And it's, that's one of the other reasons it's so important to evict indigenous people from those places because they're not thinking about that space in their religion or their spiritual practice in the way that you are. But once you evict them, you can colonize that belief and claim that you're experiencing what the indigenous inhabitants that you just had killed or evicted were experiencing. I remember in the 1990s, the singing forest movement in the West Kootenays, where a woman named Gladys McIntyre, about whom I'm not going to say 100% flattering things, but let me get this out of the way first. Gladys McIntyre made the best scrambled eggs I have ever eaten in my entire life from the chickens that she kept. So whatever I think about her singing forest theory, those were some damn fine eggs. Now, Gladys McIntyre experienced what... Um, uh, religious scholars call a theophany in 1994. She went into a mixed second and old growth forest in the West Kootenays uh, that was slated for logging in the near future. She's already very much a part of the Back to the Lander movement, Back to the Lander culture, and the trees began singing to her. And she used this testimony as a justifying discourse for preventing their logging that had been slated by the provincial government. At the time, she was allied with Marilyn James, who was um, one of the last of the Sinaiuxt people, the indigenous people who had been declared extinct by the Canadian government in an effort to seize their lands for the Columbia River reservoirs uh, in the 1960s. Marilyn James had been working for decades um, to have the Sinaiuk's people recognized as not extinct. As a transboundary people, she would bring in Sinaiuk's people from the United States who would then be um, uh, subject of APBs in Nelson to be detained and uh, repatriated to the U.S. on the grounds of their extinction. In the Sinaiuk's worldview, this forest did not have singing trees. This was all a massive inconvenience, and it made it very hard for people to unify behind uh, Gladys McIntyre's theophany 
because Marilyn James and Robert Watt and the other synods people would not agree to have this particular modern, romantic, white understanding of their forest imposed on their own historical past and their own myth system. And we see this a lot. Uh, Sam Gill's book, Mother Earth, chronicles this in great detail throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. So, yes, it's important to understand that although today the environmental movement, including the Sierra Club, are defenders of science and reason in the face of our larger scale epistemic breakdown, they also contain within them this romantic, religious, spiritual, Jaina space of the environmental movement. Initially, and really up to till the very recent past, really not until the second wave of the environmental movement, uh, that begins in the late 1960s, do we see the environmental movement privileging scientific and objective information over uh, experiential and personal information? And it's there that I'll take a moment to give credit to Jim Boland and his extraordinary impact on restructuring what the environmental movement meant. Bolin, founder of Greenpeace, uh, one of those six guys, most influential in what Greenpeace became, and one of the people who was a member of the Sierra Club, who became a dissident in the Sierra Club through a series of democratic votes and was forced out and had to create Greenpeace. It's Bolin who really represents the rise of environmentalism as science that up until that point, even though there are many scientific arguments to be made in favor of environmentalism, it's the romantic side, not the scientific side, that shapes the discourse. What year was the Sierra Club founded? It, it's through a process. So the Yosemite campaign is really the moment where it begins. And I believe that's 1871. Um, I think it's a, uh, I don't think it becomes an official national organization until the late 1880s. It steps onto the national stage at a very high level because so many of the RNC are uh, Sierra Club board of directors members. What a remarkable historical irony. Wow. Let's remember that George W. Bush's granddad founder of Planned Parenthood. The, uh, the, the contention that I want to put to you or, or the, the way to sum this up. One of the things that we're discussing here in, in all of these changes, I mean, we have we have some concepts and some, some themes here. I mean, uh, uh, the Enlightenment and Romanticism, uh, uh, conservationism and environmentalism, and, and these sorts of things. You could maybe you could maybe argue is the overarching theme of this episode is that what we're what we're seeing along with these changes, or perhaps the driver of these changes, is the overthrow of one ruling class for another, right? We get the, we get the, from the aristocracy, they're, they're kind of overthrown and disinhabited themselves in, uh, to, the, to, the, to the bourgeois. Yeah, the, absolutely. That what we're dealing with here is the aesthetics of the bourgeoisie. Right, uh, and, and, and this is deeply related to our time in which we, we seem to be, or at least there's rumblings uh, of, of the current ruling class being challenged, contested, potentially overthrown, who knows? So... Right. So what do the aesthetics of the present show us about the bourgeois, the, uh, the bourgeois conflict? So the, the TV series succession 
in its second season, this uh, this series where it, it's interesting because there are two sort of visions of the present day American elite. Uh, there's a Chomskyan vision that uh, emphasizes consensus, and there's a Glenn Greenwald vision that re- emphasizes division. And uh, Greenwald's brought in as a major script consultant on the show Succession to depict America's divided elite. And there's this wonderful scene of a dinner party that is hosted by the owners of a liberal media empire. And they invite the people who are the main characters in the show who are supposed to be the Murdoch family Mm. to come to dinner and woo them to sell their TV stations. And it's fascinating because you see the intra-elite conflict is all represented culturally. So every so the liberal family, the children are all unemployed and unemployable, just like the conservative family. But the liberal family has trained its children to talk about the latest novel they've read, to keep going back to graduate school and getting other unnecessary degrees at Ivy League universities. The liberal family does a stargazing tour of their property. They, they've replaced uh, prayer. They say grace by picking great English literature. So grace is by Shakespeare or Swift or somebody. And so they're all of these cultural affectations. And the conservative family can't hit those notes. They keep saying the wrong thing. Only the conservative patriarch has enough education to communicate with the liberals. But, right, the education is not about how the world is. It's about how to aestheticize the world. Mm -hmm. It's about poetry. It's about literature. It's about landscape. And it's about the heavens. And what I think we see that's really interesting with we when we look at the rise of a Trump or Erdogan or uh, Orban or Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro Duterte, mm-hmm. there isn't a competing theory of aesthetics. There is a belief in the nullification of the aesthetic. Right? Donald Trump taking well-done steaks and covering them in ketchup. This is not, even in Donald Trump's mind, making a good-tasting thing. The, that amazing hamburger scene, right? Where he's misspelled hamburger and he's surrounded by like cold filet of fish, right? He's seeing like the least popular McDonald's burgers, letting them cool on these gold daises and then forcing people to choke them down. Um, this is an attack on the aesthetic itself. It's saying that we refuse to have an aesthetic dimension to our hegemony. Um, we choose to nullify your aesthetics, not to oppose them through an alternative. Um, or you get the mobilization of the grotesque, right? But again, that's an attack on the conventional aesthetic, um, the aestheticization of the grotesque. Um, <laughs> is is not a sincere statement about the aesthetic representation of these people's elite worldview, right? For the feudal aristocracy, for the capitalist gentry, 
there's an aesthetic representation of their worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we what do we have for this new this new uh, attempt at hegemony? Right? Are any of the depictions of Vladimir Putin anything other than insults of other people's depictions? Right. Here is a leader of a world rich in iconography that made those stark, shocking, brutalist sculptures of Stalin or of the statue of the motherland that Stalin at Volgograd. Mm-hmm. Um, right, those are still, these are still aesthetic entrants that are serious, right? But instead we have we have a nullification of the aesthetic as a category. Um, And what are we to make of that? It seems that there's like a different level of horror. And I think, of course, that's part of what's kept the progressive project together. What's conscripted so many people of the left together that to, to say, well, it's this or nothing, because that's what a Trumpian or an Orban aesthetic presents. It, it presents void. It doesn't even present something like Soviet realism. It presents the nullification that there should be an aesthetic representation. In 1978, science historian James Burke premiered his television show, Connections, on the BBC. Connections looked at a single seemingly insignificant event or artifact and showed how it was connected to profound shifts uh, throughout history, tracing the object's provenance forwards and backwards through the centuries. In 1985, the day the universe changed followed up connections, again hosted by Burke, shows that helped to inspire a generation to be curious about the interactions between economics, science, and history. Dan Jennison, our interviewer, and I are very thankful for the contributions of James Burke and wish to dedicate this show to him on behalf of Los Altos Radio Archive.